millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. Welcome to a new episode of Show Your Work. Same bat time, same bat channel. Um, I, I sort of did that off the cuff, but it kind of works. I, you know, when we're talking about work, I have a superpower. I can always tell when anybody on any show, any podcast, any anything has a cold. Like, I always know. I have, like, special delight in episodes of This American Life where Ira Glass has a cold. He doesn't hide it well. Yeah. But, but I can hear it in anybody. All this to say I have a cold and I can hear almost like an alter ego in my voice. Uh, but I don't know what to do with this skill besides being like, I know, I know. <laughs> like, I don't know what I should do with it. Yeah. I don't know if that is a superpower. Oh, it's a total superpower. It's absolutely, I would put myself in the top like 1% of the 1% who can hear it. Okay. But like, what does it do for you as as we've been talking about superpowers? Like, it's it's like a little degree of profiling. It's not quite psychic, but like I can… It's one of those little details that you put in like, Duanna lives in Toronto and can always tell when someone on the TV has a cold. Right. But also (laughs) like if I'm listening to something or whatever, I can sort of triangulate who… how somebody's feeling or where they come from on a given thing because I can also hear like their sort of sinus health. But I also feel like people have these weird talents that cannot be marketed and we should be finding a way for these things. Like, do you have a special talent that is not being utilized as it should be? I can eat a burger and I always do this. I always eat a burger in the shape of Australia. Excuse me? Yes. I don't… By choice? Yeah. It tastes better that way. Like, I go around the rim of the burger. Yes. You call it that. Yeah. And then always my burger ends up looking like Australia. Just like let's go back to it tastes better that way because of something you're doing with your mind or because like you think there's some flavor distribution. Like are you carrying a pickle bite over to an onion bite? Well, I mean if you think about a burger, a perfectly created burger has everything concentrically laid. Is that the right word? Like it's round and so when you're lying things on top of each other… The closer you get to the center, the better it's going to taste. So you want to get rid of the edges first. Like the edge bites are never going to taste as good as the middle bites. But by your logic, everything should be equidistantly spread over the whole burger. That's impossible because it's quite impossible to find a burger or even to make a burger that's going to be the same size as your bun. I mean, it's just, it isn't done. Isn't that the whole point? Are we talking fast food burgers? Like engineered? Like, because I have often thought, just to get real about this, I've often hoped that like a fast food joint or something would, you know, wallpaper a layer of pickles rather than just one errant pickle tossed on there. Or like an even layer of onions or whatever it's going to be instead of just like where they fly. 
This is all fast food burgers and real life burgers, homemade burgers, whatever you want. Right. Like you're, it's impossible almost to line the edge of the meat up with the edge of the bun. Of course, because think about it, your patty always shrinks. So you should make a bigger patty though. You have that in your control. Right. It's difficult though to make a bigger patty that maintains its infrastructure. Like when you think about it, you're going to have to, and I, I wish we could like show this to you, but if you want your patty to end up here after shrinkage. Sure. It's almost… The size of the span of your fingers, yes. That's right. You almost have to create a patty with raw meat that's at least probably one and a half times bigger. You're making like a parabola shape. Like I'm making… Yeah, I'm I'm putting like an inch and a half between my fingers. Okay. So that… It's hard for a patty to stay together when it's that size. I've tried this. Okay. So you eat in the shape of Australia and… And it's so good. Like by the time you get to Australia, every one of those Australian bites is pure. You get the meat, you get an equal amount of sauce, you get… I mean, I have a particular way of having a burger, so you get your tomato, your bite of avocado, your pickle… Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Did you not call me twee a couple of weeks ago for going to a farmer's market? You're putting avocado on your burger there, Obama? Oh my God. I love avocado on a burger. I'm not mad at it, but let's not say that that's not a hipster thing to do. It's not a hipster thing to oh do. Oh my Jesus Christ. Remember California- when they yelled at Obama for getting spicy mustard on his hamburger? Oh my God. I also love a spicy mustard. Yeah, me too. They have a like, sriracha mayo now that I, I live for. Um, have you had a sriracha mayo? I could live my whole life without ever having a mayo ever again. Really? Yeah. Oh, I don't know how this turned into a conversation about burgers and food, but I will tell you right now. And besides, like, avocados on burgers happened way before hipster season. Like, a California burger has avocados on it. And a California burger has been around forever. Californians are the original hipsters. No. Californians might be like the original pseudo-annoying hippies, but I'm not convinced that California can claim original hipster status when, like, you need long pants um, for hipsters to exist, and based on the weather, California is not like, you know, an overall blanket long pant kind of situation. I mean, first of all, you're stretching. Second of all, Californians, I'm not sure whether you've just been insulted or like backed up, (laughs) but if you could weigh in here and let us know that you are A, out there and that you enjoy the uh, designation of avocado burgerers. P.S. Most people, even if by some long shot, the original origin of hipsters was in California, most people associate hipsterdom with Brooklyn. Okay, whatever. The whole point about like being too busy eating avocado toast to get a mortgage or whatever the hell that article was, uh, like we know where avocados come from. No, I think that millennials have slandered avocados for sure so that now everybody who associates… Oh my… Okay, I'm also not here. No, we're done with millennial hate. I can't. No, nobody's hating millennials, but I mean like the avocado slash millennial association has really given avocados a bad name. And I feel bad for the avocado. The way you said that made me really feel like the Millennial Avocado Association was like like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Like it's actually uh, a charity. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, 
anyway, those poor avocado because, you know, now you think of avocado and you immediately associate it with, you know, that millennial who nope. can't have a mortgage. It used to be associated because- with, nope. Californians like crunchy bean sprouts. Remember when bean sprouts was like a, deris- a like a derisive insult about uh, about hippies and crunchy granola people. Really? Yeah, that was yeah yeah. Bean sprouts and like what Birkenstocks? Is that what that would go together? Sprouts in general, I think maybe okay. beans in general. Avocado is a is an extrapolation of that. Well, I all I'm saying is that try an avocado on your burger so good. There's nothing wrong with an avocado on your burger. I'm just saying that, you know, all those people you malign at farmers markets, that's what they're eating. Avocados? On their burgers. I think more what? No. In any event, the truth here is get those sandwich stacker pickles. You can actually scissor them into the shape of your burger if you would like. Do we have like I don't think a- people who go to farmers markets eat meat. Anyway. Guys. <laughs> Guys, like, those are the people. They're like, California enjoy my lentil burger and go to the farmer's market. That's what that's going to sound like. Do you hear her talking about you this way? <laughs> Guys, like farmer's market attendees, farmers, Californians, we're like four minutes in and this is the hit list so far. <laughs> yeah. Let me like, you know, go get my heirloom tomato on the Saturday morning farmer's market and I'm going to go home tonight with like a lentil burger. I'm done. Um, Let's get to our show. <laughs> right. Is that what you had for lunch? A Pardon lentil me? burger? I've never touched a lentil burger. I'm eating an avowed carnivore. You know this. Right. Also, I don't know why I'm in the position of having to be defensive <laughs> about my, like, planet-killing red meat eating. Could we just move on? Okay. We are moving on. We are moving on to Jennifer Lopez who we have not discussed yet on Show Your Work, and I am so excited about this because you and I talk about J-Lo a lot. Oh, yeah. And Sometimes it's like on the most frivolous level. It's uh, you texting me out of the blue, how? How? Like, it sounds like that, the yeah. text. Does she manage to look better now? Look better now? She really does. Like, it's one of those things. Yeah. Uh, 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 genetic gifts are, I don't know, not everybody who becomes famous has a genetic gift, right? Like that is a luck of the draw. That's the lottery. But when you have both, when you have fame and stuff and genetic gifts like that, Mm -hmm. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. But the other thing that's exciting about this is that you turned to me one day in April and said, we haven't talked about Jennifer Lopez yet. And then you said, and we have to wait till it's right. Like there's no sort of interest in spending it too early. Yes. I wanted to save our JLo discussion because, um, I mean, I feel like, especially for you, what I wanted to talk to you about related to JLo is she was entering her status on the A-list around the time I think you started working in entertainment. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. Um, she was the number one get. Yes. Like I remember a, an event, a red carpet that I did, which turned out, you always kind of have expectations for how it's going to be. They give you a list, I should say, when you go to a red carpet to cover it of people who are expected to attend. That can mean invited and there's no chance, Mm -hmm. or it can mean we confirmed it with their publicist and they're showing up in like four minute increments. Yeah. But we went to a red carpet with like, say, a seven on the expectation scale 
we got like a 9.5 on the great interviews and clips. And still J-Lo, who was there but did not talk, was the white whale. Like she was the number one get, the number one thing for a really, really long time. And still is in the sense of like, you know, when she shows up somewhere, you know, it's not like no one's going to care. Everyone is going to care. No, because she sells it. Because she commits to being gold. Like just to, this is not just about red carpets, but can I digress for one second? The most frustrating thing in that situation is when a celebrity would show up on the red carpet, the whole point of which is to be seen and spoken to by the press and skips talking to people. If you're going to skip the whole thing and go in a back door, whatever, that's your life. Feel free. But when somebody shows up and then doesn't actually talk to anybody, runs by the line, it's the biggest fuck you in the world. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating. Oh, I have a long list of fuck yous for people who meet that criteria. Right. Top of that list is Leonardo DiCaprio. There you go. Uh, uh, Brad Pitt. Because by doing that, they're actually saying to you, hi, I give the middle finger in your direction. I'm here. I could talk to you. I am four feet from you, but I'm not going to, even though I know it's your job, even though I know that you're not like a rabid fan, that you're here because you're being paid to. I'm not going to talk to you. Jennifer Lopez never does this. No. She shows up to work and everything that she does and every place that she goes is to sell her work to us. And that is why we're here is to talk about J-Lo and her work. Uh, BuzzFeed published an article this week by uh, Bim Adewunmi and the title is Jennifer Lopez Doesn't Need to Be the Best at Everything. J-Lo's hard work and versatility, rather than solely raw talent, have kept her on top for decades. Now with World of Dance, she's using her power to mold new stars in her own image. This article, and it's a good, nicely, substantial, juicy, deep read, is all the work of J-Lo and an an observation of the work of J-Lo over the last 20 years. Um, Now, the work right now for J-Lo is World of Dance, I know a lot of people watching this show, and its numbers are solid. I think the debut was almost 10 million viewers. Um, And I think the second episode, I'm going to check this later, but the the second episode did well too. Um, This is big. She's producing now a hit reality TV show on NBC. She also has a scripted TV show on NBC, Shades of Blue. And what's notable about that, I should say, is that like, this is what happens when there's somebody who is a talent, who is a hit, people don't want to let go of them. If you're at NBC, for example, they're like, what else do you have? Just don't go anywhere. Yeah. We will keep you around. But I find this interesting that we talk about work and we talk about how to scale work. We talk about how to be the best at work. And yet the thesis of this piece in BuzzFeed seems to be that Jennifer Lopez might be better at working hard and working smart yeah. than she is at individually singing, dancing, and acting. That right. she's just okay in those realms, but because her work ethic and her work approach is so good, she makes what she is mediocre at even interesting. Which is like… Amazing for two reasons. Because on the one hand, it's a great thesis. On the other hand, this is nothing new, right? Like this is the thing that we've heard since we were children. Like talent will only get you so far. Hard work will get you 
all the way there. What's interesting about Jennifer Lopez to me, as opposed to somebody else, and we'll get to who those somebody else's would be, is I bet you money she knows that. I bet you she knows she's a 6 out of 10 on this scale or a 7 out of 10 on that one, but she works so hard that it gets to an 11. But I also like that she's made it part of her brand. Like we've heard before, hardest working woman in the business or one of the hardest or one of the hardest working women in the business. And we don't doubt it the way we doubt it when, you know, some other actors talk about how hard they work because you actually see J-Lo at work all the time. Even when J-Lo doesn't have something to promote, it feels like she's working hard. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But I, I also think she gives us the impression of like, I'm doing uh, awkward hand gestures here. She's the queen to me of having fingers in many pies. Like, I don't know this to be true, but I have always felt like she was, had like a producing interest in projects almost long before she should have. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would, if I were betting money, not looking at the article right now, I'd say she had a producing interest as far back as say, Almost Selena, like Jennifer Lopez wants to be in control. She's driving. She's always working. She gives you the impression that she's always working, right? Yeah. And there are things that she does that like with very little fanfare. Remember uh, last year after the uh, awful uh, pulse attacks in Orlando, she and Lin-Manuel Miranda released a song. And I found that out from his Twitter, because he tweets about everything all the time under the sun, she just like showed up, did the work and nailed it, as you do, uh, because she's so busy with so many things. She doesn't almost fanfare, she doesn't almost fanfare launch these huge things because she's like, yeah, I got all kinds of things coming off the conveyor belt. And what I also think is interesting is that she, unlike so many women in the business who have to wear failures more than men. And the most recent time we talked about this on this show was um, related to Dirty Dancing. And Abigail Breslin. That's sure. right. And how Abigail Breslin will probably be the person who wears the failure of Dirty Dancing more than anybody else. Yeah, she absolutely has been. Even though we know it's not her fault, she is the butt of all the jokes and memes and whatever. That's right. And what Bim, the author of this piece in BuzzFeed, is saying is that, like, interestingly enough, J-Lo, who, because she works so hard and works at so many things, inevitably has had non-successes. It's natural when you try as hard as she does. And when you work as hard as she does, not everything is going to be the blockbuster thing, right? Some things are going to suck. Even though she has some sucks on her resume, as all the greats do, she doesn't really wear it. And the good example that Bim brings up here is Gili. Right, of or my, course. Or Gili. Gili, okay. yes. Is Gili, where when we think of Gili, we laugh at Ben Affleck. We don't, I am the cow, yes. <laughs> we don't laugh at her. No. Now, is that, let me play, let me try and play devil's advocate. Do we not laugh at J-Lo for Gili because J-Lo's work isn't an Oscar winner's work. You know, he had the Oscar at that point. He had the Goodwill Hunting Oscar. And he, you know, is the um, the male in there who has to, you know, have prestige work all the time when a lot of her work has been 
not at that level. I mean, listen, I don't believe that, but I want us to sort of take that point of, you know, he fell harder and got knocked for it harder because we expect more from him. This is going to sound counterintuitive, but it's that thing that the person who cares more always loses, right? The idea, even though this is not the truth from this woman who works so hard, the idea is, well, she doesn't care as much about whether the movie is a flop because she has these other music interests. She has fashion interests, or she did at that time. She has other things going on. Like, she's fine. Yeah is the implication. He only has a movie career. So if this is a bad step in his movie career, he's in trouble. She's got shit to do, man. She's going to move on over here, over yeah. there, over wherever. And so it doesn't stick because she's always got more going on. Yep. And another thing that didn't stick is you talked about the fashion line. So that was Sweet Face, which, uh, do you remember Sweet Face? Vaguely. Like, I mean, I think there's been more than one, possibly more than several. I think Sweet Face was the one that she was sending down the runway at New York Fashion Week because I remember, like, well, because it's a J-Lo endeavor, we all covered it, right? right? <laughs> we looked at the pictures, we posted those pictures, we, and Sweet Face went away, like, really fast. I mean, it didn't last. It, on the Jennifer Lopez resume, it is considered a, an X. Right. And yet, nobody remembers Sweet Face. Another star would maybe wear that kind of failure a little bit, considering, I mean, considering how much money must have been put into that, um, considering what the investment would have been. It's, to me, that is, like, and I didn't really stop to think about this until, again, uh, Bim wrote about this for BuzzFeed, and I was like, yes, 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 J-Lo. Yeah, you know, there's two things here. Like, number one, yeah, she always has these other interests, right? Which is great. But part of the reason that's so great is because when you say, oh, she has these X's on her resumes or these failures, I want to make like a, a thesis statement that I feel I want to be one of the tenets of show your work. I don't know if you're going to like it, but I would argue that failure is part of the point if you are not failing, sometimes you're not trying enough shit. Yes. You're not doing enough things because you have to fail before you do it right. How often do you go back and look at your old writing 10 years ago, 12 years ago? I don't like to do it very often, but… Because why? It's embarrassing. It sucks. Sure. It's cringy. And obviously nobody wants to like, you know, I'm not actually cringy. saying your writing sucks, but like that's logic. You get better because you're doing it more. Of course. But you only get better through. You don't get better by like waiting and only waiting and only doing the thing when you are sure it's perfect because you're going to make first timer mistakes, right? But if you are going to do a little film, do some stuff, like take a, this is why people arrange small roles so you can get your feet wet and figure out what the hell standing on your mark is. Do a little fashion, see how it goes, learn your mistakes, etc. Uh, and move forward, do small things before the big, but failure is and should be an essential part of the process. Yes? I agree. Yes. Praise J.K. Rowling. I mean, like, that's why her Harvard commencement speech has been viewed so many times and how, and why we repost it so many times. I mean, that was the thesis is failure is good. Fail more often. Fail more often because it's the path to the truth. Somebody told me a statistic once 
and I've never forgotten it. It says for every 14 no's, you get a yes. That's like a law of averages or whatever. I don't know if it's about door knocking or whatever it is, but it means that every time you fail, every time you get a no, you're getting closer to the yes. But if you stop after six no's, you're never getting there. I mean, you say that the way to get through failure is through, and that is exactly what she does. She goes through. There's no like having to over-explain it. You know, you don't read an interview with J-Lo where she talks about, you know what? This is what I learned on Sweet Face. No. Bye. Next. Bye. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like that too with her relationships. She'll go on the record in an interview and be like, hey, uh, yeah, my marriage didn't work out. Uh, what a bummer. And? Yeah. Like, so she's given you the answer. She's not like, I can't talk about this. It's too painful. It was painful. It didn't work out. Uh, next. <laughs> you know, when we started talking about fashion lines, I started thinking about capsule collections, you know, s- intentionally small collections, right? Not like I am a fashion designer now, but here are five things I wanted to make. Moving on. And she almost seems to treat everything like a capsule collection, right? It's like, I'm going to do a movie, then I'll be done with it. I'm going to do a song with Lin-Manuel. It's going to take me like whatever it took, three days, then I'm moving on. If something is hugely successful, okay, I'll do it again. I'll add to that capsule. But she's never like, I'm making a giant left turn, as you say, even romantically. And what's interesting about that to me is that I didn't intend this when we decided to talk about this, but I'm biting my tongue every minute to keep from comparing her to Madonna, who of course works just as hard, worked just as hard, had her hands in as many pies, but somewhere along the way, she started to apologize. I think the biggest uh, apology probably was in and around Evita. Yes? Go on. She, nobody thought she could do Evita. She was defensive in the press before, during, and after. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Depending on who you ask, it was or wasn't a success, but she sort of like got defensive about it. Like, let the work speak for itself. Move on. Do a thing. But she was sort of very, like, she cared more. She cared more than the press who were covering it about whether or not it was good, right? And then, like, subsequently, she cared a lot about everything she did in and around Guy Ritchie and, like, was defensive or explainy or whatever about them. Uh, We can psychoanalyze why that was. But, like, she didn't used to apologize, right? No. No. Never in the, like, never in the, I mean, especially not, like, in the coffee table book era. Do you remember the coffee Sex, table? The yeah. Coffee? Of course. There was no apology there. No, that was like, a th- but, and, and again, it's not like, oh, Madonna, you're a writer now or a publisher or whatever it was. It's just like, no, here's a thing I'm doing. Yeah. Here's some pictures. Right. I think I look great. I'm going to shock you. Oh, are you shocked? I'm not sorry. Anyway, moving on, but there was much more explanation and sort of like, I don't know, cradling us into it when it came to the English roses. Remember that? Yeah. The storybook? Yeah. Like oh, yes. a scant 10 years later or whatever. That's really, you know, that's really interesting because with Madonna, it was almost like she was saying to us, take me seriously as an actor. And the more we heard her repeat, I'm an actor too, I'm an actor too, the less we wanted to believe she was an actor. 
Yeah, like I was a kid kid when she did, uh, wait for the super current reference, guys, Dick Tracy. But like, didn't she do fine? Everybody fine. was like, good for you. Yeah. Like she did very well in a league of their own. She did like, what else did she do? Body of evidence? I don't know what that was. That but, wasn't like, very good. Whatever. But like the point was like next, she had a lot of shit going on. She was doing truth or dare. She was doing stuff. And then it became like, she started looking over her own shoulder. Well, I'm, I'm really like, and this is why I love doing this with you because I wasn't expecting you to bring up Madonna and especially not in this context, but um, in Truth or Dare, Madonna has a moment where, of course, she's like saying this because the cameras are on, but like, this is what she wants to say. She says to, um, she's, and they're, they're in bed and she's with, uh, the two backup dancers, the backup singers, the girl, yeah, 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 Nikki yeah. and, And, um, Donna. Yep. And she says, I know I'm not the best singer and I know I'm not the best dancer, but whatever the but is, right? Right. And this is exactly what we're saying here about J-Lo. Not the best actor, not the best singer, not the greatest dancer in the world, but. Right. So your comparison is really apt, and yet there's something different about how J-Lo has so far, at least now, navigated. Maybe it's about drinking the Kool-Aid, you know? It's, It's about, like, listening to your own hype. Like, Jennifer Lopez has never quite gotten the hype that Madonna got. She's never quite gotten the... God, you're reinventing the genre because she isn't, right? No, no. She has been, she's done R&B and it's been super fun and she's been like at the top of the charts, but she's not reinventing everything. No. She's never been Beyonce. She's not reinventing fashion. She's not reinventing rom-coms. Ergo, she's never quite had that like worshipful press. You are basically pop culture Jesus, right? Yeah. Like that's what has been said about some of the others. So she never had that hype to believe. She's always been, I can't believe I'm about to say this, just a working entertainer, right? Yep. Nobody's ever said like, God, who's the next J-Lo? We say, who's the next Madonna? Who's the next Beyonce? Who's the next uh, Meryl Streep, right? Who's the next Bono? I don't know. Uh, But we don't say, who's the next J-Lo? She's just carving her own niche being fine with the fact that she's not at the top of anybody's list, but that she's going to fill a spot very, very well. And that, in that way, actually being at the top. Yeah. A friend of mine told me a phrase once, uh, like a career phrase that I think is like adapted from something that uh, Robert De Niro said, but basically it's like, don't look left, don't look right, only look in front of you. You You can't have somebody else's career. You can't do what somebody else is doing. There's no point. Like the job that they get necessarily isn't yours, was never yours. You can only do what you're going to do. And she's kind of amazing at that. She is amazing at that. And you know what? Listen, I really love this article because of course this article has given us so much work talk and so much work juice. And what I also love about this article is that it acknowledges um, one of the greatest Uh, moments in J-Lo history, and it was a fashion moment. Oh, of course. (laughs) Right. It was, as this article says in all caps, that dress. Right. Uh, We don't need to describe the dress to you. You know. You know what the dress is. And I find that amazing. Um, And a reminder, I had forgotten that two people wore that dress before she did. 
Oh, I, this may be new news. Who wore it before? Definitely Donatella okay. wore it. Yeah, okay, but like, okay. And also, Jerry Hallowell. I mean, okay, sure. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. So the, uh, here's the sentence. The dress had been spotted on red carpets before, worn by its designer, Donatella Versace, and the singer, Jerry Hallowell. But it was Lopez who owned it. So even if I had known that fact, which I can't remember knowing, it's irrelevant because her wearing of that dress removed facts from my mind and removed them in such a way that I'm okay if the new fact is that dress is just Jennifer Lopez. And that dress became a major pillar in this career. A dress. Hi, Blake Lively. But the thing is the dress, but again, she didn't give a shit. Sure, it had been worn by others. But like, Mm -hmm. here's what's interesting is that dress at that time was the most naked dress we had ever seen on the red carpet. That's hilarious too. Right? Like, Like, I know. Now it's basically (laughs) chased. Like, it's basically a cardigan. Yeah. But at the time, it was the most naked dress we had ever seen. Yes. And she cared less. She could give a shit what people were going to say about, like, oh, it's kind of slutty. Oh, it's kind of whatever. Oh, it's kind of this. She didn't go on. Like, think about if that had been someone else, uh, uh, a Taylor Swift, for example, or a, I'm trying to think of who would have been a darling back then, a Meg Ryan. That person would have gone on like a talk show apology tour to like, you know, mea culpa her way around the naked dress. No, but the dress for her, as you said, she didn't care, and yet she cared enough to not care. And what I'm saying by that is that that dress was work. She chose it for a reason. The year before, there was the arrest with Diddy, as Bim points out in this BuzzFeed piece. And what she did was, by going to the Grammys with Diddy in that dress, she was like, oh, no, 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 we're going to have a new conversation. You're going to stop caring about what's going on in my relationship and whether or not this guy is a bad influence on me. Or she's a bad influence on him. It was back then enough that that could have been the other way around. Sure. Um, And I'm going to wear this dress and you're going to talk about me in an entirely different way. And it is going to be a thing that not only redirects, but becomes like a launch pad. I'm going to treat it as a trampoline. That fucking dress was a trampoline. She jumped from that dress away from Diddy. I mean, it was with that dress that she was like, oh, wait, uh, people care about me in a whole new level now. See ya. I'm moving on. I'm taking that and I'm running away. But like, let's be honest though. Had the dress gone the other way, had it been too scandalous for publication or whatever the hell would have been like the, the wrong reaction from it? She still would have been fine. She still would have rolled her way into something else because she always had something else cooking. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's interesting. She knew that she had something else cooking and she used the dress to like add to the flames of whatever was cooking. Do you know what I mean? Like it was so, to me, like I, and this is my own, like, uh, this is my own little crusade because it made me so angry and I still have anger about that Blake Lively moment at that Variety Power of Women event where, you know, these actresses, and Blake was the, the last one to do so, are so sanctimonious and indignant about clothing and whatever and whatever. This is an asset. Here is an example of using fashion as an asset that men don't have. Right. And Blake Lively's argument, if she were here, of course, would be like, 
but I just don't want to be seen for my torso. I like have so much more to give. Of course, the argument being, yeah, sure, but you're not going to get to give it if you don't prove your worth, uh, your value to the entertainment ecosystem. And she proves her worth, Lopez, that is, over and over and over again. I just want to make a point here. She is the lead in Shades of Blue. She stars in every episode. It's hers. If for some reason World of Dance blows up tomorrow, she's still the lead on a network show. People would kill for that. There are lots of people who that's their only job. She has at least two. She probably has three more things brewing that we don't know about and a production company and a this and a that and a whatever. She's guarding against those kinds of missteps on a red carpet that Blake Lively has with a million other ways to change the conversation. Because why the hell not? Why the hell not? And a million other ways to change the conversation. And some of those ways to change the conversation is an effective use of her personal life. You know, a few weeks ago, you were talking about somebody who I can't remember, and maybe this is the point, and your point was, uh, make me care. You know, like, give me something. I mean, great, you're good at that work, and you're good at that job, but, and, and, and this is what you were referring to, I think. Sure, and we fully acknowledge that that's not necessarily fair, right? That an actor shouldn't necessarily need to do this, point being... I don't know shit about Meryl Streep's uh, romantic life, and that's probably fine. Right. A superstar does, though. A superstar. An actor doesn't necessarily need to do this, but a superstar does. Sure, because she's a star more than she is a a skilled technician, right? That's where you started this conversation. Yeah. She's not the most skilled of anybody, but she is a star. So stars give us something different than skilled technicians who come in and out and then, you know, depart to their, like, ranches in Montana. And unapologetically, her love life is part of that stardom. Her love life is part of the brand of J-Lo. She knows it better than anybody else. Yeah. And look, and I, maybe I'm giving her too much credit here, but while I agree with everything you're saying, I also don't think it's that calculated right? She is that woman that we all know in real life who is just like a loves a lot. Like she, (laughs) (laughs) yes, right? She just does. She just loves super hard and she is all in and everything in her life is about, uh, you know, so-and-so. It's about Mark Anthony until it's not, until it's about Ben Affleck, until it's about uh, fucking uh, your slum bear, until it's about... Like, she really, truly is that. And she's like, well, why would I hide it? Like, why wouldn't I just be? And there's that authenticity that lets her get away with it, right? And is extremely frustrating to me because, like, I mean, this is not so much work, but let's just play psychoanalyst and relationship therapist. But, like, when you are J-Lo and in control of almost every aspect of your life, when you are J-Lo the mogul, is it inevitable that in your personal life you fall for the asshole controlling fuckheads. But I'm going to argue that let's, sure, let's say that's a flaw of hers, right? Like let's say, and I mean, I don't know how some of these 25-year-olds are controlling whatever, but let's say, let's let's give you that, right? 
it's still not a problem because she's flawed. This is the scripted television rule of thumb. If somebody's too perfect, you hate them, right? Like this is part of the like allure and issue with Taylor Swift is that like she's super perfect except she keeps losing boyfriends. So you're like, oh, I can kind of relate to that. Jennifer Lopez is a superstar, in your words, who picks the wrong guy every time. That makes her super relatable. And it makes it authentic in a way that choosing somebody for the press, for the positive relationship benefits that it would provide, is doesn't, right? Like, when's the, what's the last, like, high-ish profile arranged relationship that we can think of? Arranged? You know what I yeah. mean. Like, for the benefit of our mutual careers. Oh. I mean, look, people are so cynical these days that they think every relationship is arranged and every right. relationship is fake. But I mean, like, I would say for some reason that Henry Cavill, Kaylee Cuoco two-week relationship. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Do you remember that one? I, I, I'm just annoyed because I really wanted the answer not to involve Kaylee Cuoco. <laughs> that was, but yeah, that was probably the the one actual fake one that no one like has any doubts about. Right. And sort of part of the, I guess part of my point with that is like, yeah, if Jennifer Lopez was trying to do these things for benefit. Actually, can I interrupt you? I'm sorry, but maybe this one. Most people think that J-Lo and Drake were fake. Okay, so… There. there. Right. We want to stay with J-Lo. But here's what's so interesting about that. Like, it also didn't really play, right? Like, it's everybody's had that relationship. The like, oh, this is something. This is totally something. Like, oh my God, these three and a half weeks of the… Whoa. Is that over? <laughs> Did that go… No, we were just doing a thing. Are we not doing a thing? Like, that was interesting, right? If you're going to play that for press, wouldn't you play it out for a month or two? Like, I feel like that was a, uh, like, ball goes up. Oh, no, the ball comes down. Like, I feel like that was short enough to be authentic. But more to the point, if she was purely u- using her romantic life for, like, career benefit, like, only, she'd be dating better dudes, right? Like, people who get her more attention or more places or who are yeah. bold-faced names in their own right. Yes? Oh, I, I have no doubt that, as you say, loves a lot, that when she's loving a lot, it's it's real. It's real. Like, and I, what that's what's interesting is that aside from Drake, I mean, no one is out there right now doubting that she's in love with A-Rod. No. No one's saying this is a publicity relationship. We all believe, of course, she'd love that asshole. Right. Like, yeah. Right. I'm in. Because, you know, that's but who she is. because he fits the profile, right? Because but he the fits previous the profile. profiles have been like rando nobodies who, yes, you're like they're thirsty, fame-hungry <laughs> rando nobodies, but that's part of what makes it genuine, <laughs> ironically. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, she fell for like that backup dance? Okay, yeah, that's her. Like, once again, they have nothing to offer her, which to me speaks to her authenticity. You referenced the dress and that moment… And the moment when she soared far past Sean Puffy P. Diddy Coombs, right? Who, like, was a genuine huge Combs. star. Yeah. I'm not going to do this with you. Every time <laughs> it's I… It's not Coombs! <laughs> every time I acquiesce to your pronunciation, I get yelled at on Twitter. And somebody's like, it's not that either. 
We know who we're talking about. We know we're talking about okay. P. Diddy or Poppy or whoever the hell you want. Right. And like she eclipsed him. She became more famous than him. She's not dating people for their fucking fame. Like she and Ben Affleck really thought they were a thing. Remember? Oh, yeah. Remember him stroking her ass in a video? I do remember. Those were glory days. They were glory days. <laughs> um, but like all these like randos afterwards, even when she started mentioning Mark Anthony in the press, when she started saying that as though it meant something to people who were not in that world, and not to malign anybody who was already a Mark Anthony fan, but what was amazing about it is that she was talking about him like he was Ben Affleck. She was talking about him like he was, you know, uh, Brad Pitt, like he was the right. most famous person in the world. And all of us were like, "Are you, who knows? <laughs> like, him? She, but that's her gift, right? She sees these dudes in the most glorified light. She sees a Casper Smart as a, like, as like, oh yeah, that's a superstar in the making. And there's something about the genuineness of that that makes her endearing. Well, and to go back to the work then, are you saying that somehow her weird set of love eyes <laughs> um, and, and the authenticity uh, that that speaks to somehow helps her on a work level? Because for us, it's like, well, she actually isn't perfect all around. That yes. is her Achilles. And so to that end, yes, exactly. This is sort of completing the circle of the thesis, right? It also lets you have those failures that you reference fall away more easily because you're like, you know what? She's going to dust herself off and try again. No reference intended. Like she's going to move on. If this guy doesn't work out when A-Rod is not the thing, there'll be another one. She'll keep trying. And likewise at work, if there are failures, and there are far fewer failures than successes, she's going to keep rolling. Like, she's reliable that way. She doesn't lick her wounds the way many of her competitors do and the way Madonna began to, which was her fatal flaw, right? She started licking wounds and explaining and, like, vowing that her one true love was the one truest love until, like, whoops. So is there a point where you think you will stop watching her? Is there a point where she could be too stable or too settled and you would stop caring? I don't think so. Not in the near future. In the immediate, this relationship with A-Rod, eventually, not for a while. I mean, she's going to marry him or, you know, we're heading in that direction. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, going to is going to implode. Um, I will care about her a lot. So sorry, you're saying she's putting two things on the calendar for you to look forward to, the marriage and the dissolution. Correct. Correct. I don't think anybody out there is going to disagree with me here either. And you don't, you don't either. Like, no, yes. I don't, but I just love the, 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 the assumption that, that there's not one event to look forward to, but two. Yes. They're connected. Like it, there is in no world is like the marriage going to happen and <laughs> no, and then, and then happily ever after, like as if. So there's that. And it's off brand is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's off brand. Um, but then I was thinking too about, you know, in 10 years when we are watching JLo still doing whatever it is that she's doing, is JLo going to get up on stage at the Oscars? Oh, yes. And thank the Academy for her 
best supporting actress. Sure, yes, role. absolutely. Yes, yeah. she will get there because she's it's it's, you know, you can see it too, right? Oh, like yeah. I I don't know that like it's one of those things that any like you people say Jessica Chastain will win an Oscar one day. I don't think Jennifer Lopez is in those conversations, but I feel sure that she's going to win an Oscar. Let's put a bookmark in this for for next time because as we discussed, we don't just pull out the Jennifer Lopez for nothing. But let's also talk about how Jennifer Lopez is an expert at being the beneficiary of lowered expectations. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Stand by for that. Stand by for that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, so while we've talked about how J-Lo may not be the best this, that, and the other, it is the work. Nobody doubts the hard work. Just like nobody doubts the hard work of Tom Cruise, who also isn't… I can hear that, Duanna. Um, nobody doubts the hard work of Tom Cruise. And just like J-Lo, he also isn't the greatest actor or dancer or whatever. But Tom Cruise has worked and worked and worked hard. In fact, like, even though we know Tom Cruise works so hard, and this is on every level of work, not just when he's on set, but that thing you talked about, about blowing by red carpets. And when he is on a press tour, he is talking, he is talking. He talks to everybody. I have a story about this in a minute, but yes, please continue. So um, do we underappreciate Tom Cruise? And is that why the movies aren't doing well? Or is he just over in the way that like we're over Johnny Depp? Because The Mummy did not do well this weekend. Let's be specific. What was the, what was the expectation and what was the result? Of the, of the Mummy? Of the box office, yeah. Well, the expectation was that it was going to be a box office that was solid enough on which to build a cinematic universe. A franchise. That's right. So The Mummy was going to kick off Universal's dark universe franchise that also includes, what, Bride of Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, Invisible Man, whatever. And so, yeah, the expectation or the hope, the pressure was there. It was like, hey, be the trailblazer. We're coming in and behind you. Okay. And instead, the results were? Um, right now, it's looking like an opening weekend of barely $30 million. Ooh. So, domestically, I mean, it's going to do obviously fine overseas, but… Uh, you know, they're they're also saying that it was expensive to make. And so that's a break def- even might be break even might be the best hope right now. Right. It's a, that's a deflated weekend, uh, to put it gently, right? That's a de- yeah, that is a deflated weekend. Did you ever do ballet? Yeah, like, you know, when you're a kid, you get sent to ballet lessons. Yeah, for sure. No, I didn't. That was like one of my many scars. I wanted desperately to do ballet, but like like Okay, so like how much? What are we talking about here? Probably like every Saturday for every Saturday morning and once 
a weekday for, I want to say, two, three years. Oh, my God. God. Like, I have so much jealousy to put in that general direction. I hated it. But between you and ballet and what I know from dance movies and ballet movies and so forth, the whole point is to, like, do all these beautiful and graceful things that are actually super terrible and hard. And, like, there's that shot where the ballerina takes off her ballet slipper and it's full of blood, right? Yeah. And not make it look like work. It's supposed to look beautiful and graceful and effortless. Yes? Yes. He makes it look like work every time or every time for the last while. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if I went back to cocktail the way I've been back in a dirty dancing, like, world for the last month. I don't know if I went back to cocktail if I would be like, this is effortless. But it's not effortless anymore. He makes it look like work. I just, you know, look, the Scientology thing aside, yeah, yeah, I yeah. want to put that aside because I I honestly feel like for all the Sean Penns and the Leonardo DiCaprios of the world that we have who are celebrated and applauded and they they make it look hard too. And they, there's like an ego about it that to me, I, I personally, like right now, I prefer the Tom Cruise method. Which is what? What would you like call that if you had to label it? What I would call that is I prefer the workhorse who is get, like showing me the gears and make, like I can hear, I can hear the muscles grinding. Yeah. I mean, I understand that philosophy. I don't want to be around Leonardo the Artiste either. But the problem is that Tom Cruise isn't making those movies, right? Like, when's the last time Tom Cruise was a contender for an award? It was, what, a decade ago? Yeah. Like, you know, and it's an interesting point you bring up because in The Guardian this week, they actually wrote a piece um, about how uh, Tom Cruise, quote, should ditch the Goody Two-Shoes Act. Um, you know, he's always playing the guy who runs and saves the day and jumps into the water after the crashed car and then, like, rescues everybody. And that he's actually much more effective and appealing when he's playing the jerk. Right, right, yeah. Like, the, the part of the issue here about, like, showing the effort of the work is, yes, if you are, like, you know, accused woman abuser Casey Affleck or Leonardo DiCaprio or whomever else, like, the idea is, well, yeah, they're, sh they're, they're showing the effort, as you point out, but it's for something important. Tom Cruise is often sweating for, like, a Jack Reacher movie. Like, it's meant to be fun. It's meant not to, to be that difficult. But... As you point out, he might be better at the more difficult ones, and yet he has avoided them. Well, Sarah made this point uh, when she was writing about um, this week, while The Mummy hit theaters, his next film, which is opening in the fall, American Made, the trailer just dropped, and it looks good, and he looks good. He's not playing your hero, he's playing kind of a shady, shades of gray guy, and I love this trailer. I think it's very effective. And there are, all, there are all kinds of Tom Cruise elements in this. Fast talking, that charming smile, that quirky, like, you know, that look he gives when he crinkles one eye that we've been watching for 30 years. All of that is there. Um, but also he's playing not just the hero. I actually can't wait for that movie. 
I mean, the way that you describe it and even the way that you describe him, I'm like, yeah, I want to see that guy. I would watch that guy. Where is that guy? That, and that's what I think I'm here to do today is I, I watched this trailer after Sarah wrote about it on the blog, her post being, the point of her post being, he's scuzzy. Right. He's scuzzy in this role and I'm into it. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to allow myself to be influenced by Sarah. And I watched the trailer and I said, she's right. I am into it. He is scuzzy. And I think this is going to be, I'm going to enjoy him playing a scuzzy guy. But I feel like I'm, I'm working really hard at trying to convince you and probably trying to convince the people listening to this. Because at some point, I don't know, did we write Tom Cruise off? And is that fair? Because collectively, a lot of people who I think um, he deserves equal footing with, we don't write off at all. Again, I mentioned the Sean Penns of the world. And again, again, I mentioned, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio's. And I just, you know, on a show where we talk about trying is okay, and we would rather people try harder, no one tries harder than he does. Right. And so when you talk about, like, you know, should be in the same breath as, you're talking about, like, maybe on a talent level, yes? Or, or maybe on a… Respect. But the thing is, Elaine, he seems like he's overcompensating so hard. This is what the problem is. There were some interesting things back in the day, right? Like, again, if we sort of go, obviously, Eyes Wide Shut comes to mind. Uh, Magnolia, which does it for people or doesn't, but it's like there, right? Like, he did interesting things. God, even Rain Man, to make another super current reference, is kind of interesting, right? But the last glut of movies have yes, seemed designed right. to not ask questions. It's just running. It's just running. Mm -hmm. It's don't, like, what was the, yeah, don't ask me questions. Don't have anything probing in the story to ask me because I don't want anything near my real life or anything near the failures I have worn. Sure, about his marriages, about his religions, about whatever, right? So the further we can get from that, by making movies just about running, have been designed to make him not interesting. And he does that too, right? Like he plays in it in… Yeah, well, he seems obsessed with like showing us that he can still be Ethan Hunt and that he can still be uh, whatever, the running guy. Um, and what's funny about that is that like, okay, but Tom, we know. <laughs> Um, and so I agree with you. I agree with you there that there are, are no attempts at being things where questions need to be answered or challenges are there to be confronted. It's too scary for him. Like I, the fallout from the couch jumping, which again is not like, fuck, I don't think it was as bad as it was made out to be. Let us not forget like Drew Barrymore showing her tits to David Letterman, like, or a million other things. But he took it so hard, or that's the, that's the implication. Because after the couch jumping, we never even had the possibility of Tom Cruise saying anything remotely interesting or human. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, been, it's been a decade and a half now. Well, maybe that's where the Scientology thing comes back into the conversation. Because I honestly want to know from people out there, if you could remove from your perspective on Tom Cruise the whole Scientology thing and just see him and read him for his work. 
what you see on screen and how he promotes it and how he goes around and puts the effort into it. Would you feel differently and would you be more interested? Because other, other stars also have complicated personal lives and controversial personal lives. Yeah, but those other stars don't choose like, you know, 101 level work. Like, as you say, there are other people who uh, have questionable things in their personal lives. There are other people who are involved in a religion at which we raise a significant eyebrow, right? But they're doing interesting work. They are actually changing the conversation to do interesting work. The thing with Tom Cruise and the running movies is there's literally nothing to say. We talk about changing the conversation, but when you're doing a running movie, and when, as you say, you seem so obsessed with being like, no, I'm still virile. I'm still, still running. I'm still like, if I'm wearing lifts in my shoes, as the rumor once was, like, I'm still good at it. Like, that's a non-conversation. There's nothing to say. There's nothing for the, like, the movie outlets to talk about beyond like, this sure is a movie. And if you were doing interesting things, taking interesting risks, there might be acting work to talk about. There might be story to talk about, but he's deliberately not gone there. No, maybe not until now. Like, I am really curious, and I would like to pick up this conversation again once American Maid comes out. Um, Who directed it? Doug Lyman. Aha! Doug Lyman, if you are wondering why you know that name, uh, directed Go!, it is the name that you've seen on that worn-out VHS copy of that movie that you watched so many times in your 20s at somebody's apartment. I love Go. I, you are, like, this is why you are endlessly fascinating to me. Because nobody brings up Go when Doug Lyman comes up. They bring in the Bourne movies. They bring in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. But those are the boring <laughs> movies. Like, whatever, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is like, has 95 asterisks around it. But the reason that a Doug Lyman movie is interesting is because of something like Go. It's because of something that puts you on the map, not all the Bourne movies that are just like zzzz. Well, it's Doug Lyman. <laughs> Hi, Doug. Of Go. Yes. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith and some Bourne movies and Swingers, right? See? Um, and... What is... No, wait. I'm going to interrupt you because yes. that's the point. We went, go, and you went, swingers, right? And then, and the Bourne movies. Like, yeah, okay. Okay, but, like, again, the conversation is nobody, like, only you out of a hundred people when Doug Lyman comes up is going to bring up, go. But this is why we are different than goddamn studio suits. Because no, that's why you are you. No, because people... <laughs> Like, the board movies matter to people because they're, like, giant box office hits, yes? But nobody is like, that's my favorite movie. That is the best movie of all time. Nobody feels that way. Everybody falls asleep in them, including the people who star in them. Okay, but back to Doug Liman and this time. Go on. You got a little bit more interested in the movie. Yep. Um, it's I'm, why I asked. I'm telling you, based on this trailer, I'm interested in Tom Cruise not only for those physical Tom Cruise classic moments that I listed. What did you say? The one-eyed squint? The one-eyed squint. Yes. You know, they, for, and they've lit the shit out of him in this movie too. So sure. he looks great. But also, when was the last time you saw Tom Cruise in a love scene in a movie? Oh, fuck. 
You wouldn't dare. So there are some love scenes. There is a shot of With him. With who? Whoever the actress is. I don't know who she is. I'm sorry. Let's show her work, okay. shall we? <laughs> um, I guess that's the problem when you're in a Tom Cruise movie. Who's the actress? Um, so the actress is Sarah Wright. I mean, on the one hand, I've never heard of her, but on the other hand, Sarah Wright is a name that frankly could belong to almost anybody. So yes, go on. And we're gonna put a pin in, and we're gonna put a pin in this too once we see the movie, because she was born in 1983, which fuck you, all producers. Thank you. Um, but um I will say that in the movie or in the trailer, we see like Tom Cruise getting straddled. Tom Cruise like uh um, reaching, Tom Cruise reaching around her from behind and grabbing her ass in a makeout scene. And I don't remember, like, it, it's been a long time. I mean, that's almost quaint. Like, on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, sure, that could be hot and whatever. But on the other hand, that's almost like in a day's work for, like, the 19-year-old star of the day. Like, it's almost adorable that this is what we consider risque for Tom Cruise. Okay, I'll watch the movie with you. Yeah. Okay. And we'll pick it up. Yeah, we'll 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 make it a point to podcast directly afterward. Um one of the most anticipated movies, which we will see together. Yes. Will we? Yes. And I actually to me this is um to me this is a testament to how impressive this movie is already. Because it's a superhero movie. And I'm not going to lie, not the kind of movie you usually get excited about. Like, I don't usually hear from you over text about a movie that is a superhero movie. But this morning… Let's be real. On a weekend morning, yes. On a weekend morning, you texted me, Black Panther, Black Panther. Right. That was the only thing in the text. And I was like… I actually checked. I was like, is this (laughs) Duanna texting me or Sarah? Right. And it was you. And when I realized it was you, I laughed. But to me, it says something about Black Panther, Ryan Coogler. Let's, let's talk about this. Uh, you stopped short of saying Michael B. Jordan. Y- yes. I mean, Chadwick Boseman, who is Black Panther. No, 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 no. Just Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> yes. We, yeah. Yeah, I did email you, uh, text you. Yeah, I did text you. Uh, And it, you know, I'm not sure if what I'm about to say is like showing my work or a brag on my own behalf, but I was a little uh, proud last week of talking about like your comic book literacy uh, and my relatively low comic book literacy as I was clear on. I'm not a comic book nerd. This is something I'm very open about. And I feel as though in the past few years, sort of the evolution of the way these stories are told on screen has been designed to not appeal to me necessarily, but to point out, I'm always saying, we're always saying, uh, sort of deservedly or not, we're sitting here going, why should I care? And this trailer uh, is so explicit about why I should care. If I'm a four on the comic book literacy scale, this trailer is so clear about this is the kind of story that you're seeing. This is 
the story of people you haven't seen before, not just on screen, but like the trailer explains, like everybody thought they were in South America, but they were in Africa. Ha ha. The idea that they have been hiding in plain sight, the idea that you should care because you should have known already seems very meta to me and is very much like, hey, person who thought you didn't care that much about comic book stories, this is for you. This is your way in. I found it extremely effective. I agree with you. I think it's smart. It's smart to say, hey, we're making movies here and it's not just for the people who like have every issue stashed in their closet under the bed or whatnot, but we're making a movie for you um, so that you don't have to go to the store and get like the, the, the book that is like wrapped in plastic and, you know, rip it open for the whatever. We're making a movie that we think you're going to care about, even if you don't have the history. I like that. I like that a lot. And as you have always said, specific. Specific. Right? Yes. I mean, this has been a recurring theme of show your work. Specificity and how specificity in its specificity can somehow be universal. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is, look, I'm going to be really honest here and really sort of uh, straightforward. Specificity, especially in art, if you will, was the hardest thing for me to learn. It seems like when you're working as uh, as a writer, as a producer, as a whatever, it seems smart to appeal to everyone, doesn't it? that would be the thing that you should do. You should want to get as many people as possible in, find as many people's eyes in. So you make it broad. You make everything generic. People live somewhere. They do a job in an office because that way everybody can relate and imprint themselves on it. But it has the opposite effect. Making things broad and bland almost always makes them not as interesting as being specific. And to that end, when I talk about myself, I used to sort of agree with people who are like, well, you know, it's about a whatever. It's about a, a woman who lives in Toronto. Could they live in uh, America somewhere? And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. But what happens to that is it sort of washes the juice out of your story. This story is juicy because it's specific, because it's important that they live where they live because it's important that nobody has known all this time. I don't know the specifics. That's part of the point. But I'm very clear that it is a fully formed universe that I will have to catch up on. But the movie's like, come on in. Come on in and catch up. I also think that the people who don't understand specificity think that it's esoteric. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. I've heard people come in with the idea that if it's not broad, then it's for the few and the elite or the sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, the specials. And I don't agree with that either. No, because everything is specific, right? Like here's a, like a bland example is that if somebody lives in Kansas City and all of their attitudes are informed by Kansas City, you might say, oh, but how are people who don't live in Kansas City going to relate to this, right? But instead, what happens is that you go, oh, but I live in Kelowna and I have very specific attitudes that are Kelowna-based, just like this Kansas City person has Kansas City attitudes. Oh, I know what that's like, as opposed to somebody who lives somewhere and therefore does not have those specific feelings. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
that's a very broad example, ironically speaking, but I think it gets to the point that it's not for the few, but it's for, it's going to be more authentic than, than something that is designed not to eliminate anyone. You can see how they are conflated though, right? I mean, there are, and I don't know how we go about helping people make the distinction. Let's get real here about what we're talking about. In what way do you find Black Panther so specific? The trailer for Black Panther. Well, listen, to me, I don't find it like specific in the sense of it's exclusionary. So in that vein of that conversation. But it is specifically about a superhero who is black. And his world we are seeing is a black world. It's full of black people. Yes. That's right. Um, so it is specifically a story about a black superhero and his secret country that we are told used to be, or people thought was in South America, but was actually in Africa, to quote you, ha, ha, ha. Right. And a specific story about this black superhero who lives in an environment and in a world that has um, a specific, I don't want to say, how do I say, a specific... Um, I don't know, the world of Wakanda is like the females are the warriors. Those right. are his soldiers. Those are his bodyguards. Um, he uh, is living in a tribal nation where I guess, like what I gleaned from the trailer, and I don't know much about, they have read like Roxane Gay's work, but there are certain factions and certain tribes within Wakanda that may be jockeying for position. Very specific. And for many people, not exactly your typical superhero vein, right? We meet our superhero, uh, Peter Parker's in New York City. Gotham is a stand-in for New York City, yes? Yes, absolutely. And so the typical settings for superheroes, typical, are settings that are like familiar, and I use familiar in quotes, to your standard big box office movie audience member. But the point here is that they're actively looking for more of us. They're actively looking for those of us who don't identify as big box office comic book fans, right? Because those have all become so generic. You referenced Henry Cavill earlier, and I sort of went, yeah, note to self, figure out which part of super person hero Henry Cavill has been. They blend together. I know there's a bajillion Spider-Mans that are constantly supplanting the previous Spider-Mans, but they all blend into one white cake that has never felt like it's for me. I'm not saying that, that Black Panther is aimed specifically at me, but they are making a real point of saying, yo, we're different. It's not the superhero movie you thought. And if you thought these weren't for you, look again. And hooking you in ways that you already have a vibe for, like Michael B. Jordan. Like Michael B. Jordan. Like Michael B. Jordan working with Ryan Coogler for what, I think the fifth time? Lots of times. So yeah. that track record, Fruitvale, um, uh, Creed, um, to me is like, okay, well, I, I love this combination. I kind of love too that this is like, could be a new generation's Scorsese De Niro. Oh, that's interesting. Right? You have your director and your actor, um, 
your director and muse, for lack of a better word, combinations that have set a certain bar. But again, let's like that's about specificity, right? Kugler and Michael B. Jordan make Fruitvale Station, which is a tiny little story about a story that happened in San Francisco that none of us would know about but for that movie, right? Like, sadly, the, the, the events of that day and of that movie are local. They're small until they become universal, until they resonate with everybody. That same combination of people takes the last thing I think I'm interested in, which is a Rocky sequel, and makes it touching and heartfelt and familiar. They take things that are very specific and somehow make them global. So yeah, absolutely the track record is there to make this genre, this thing, both specific and massive at the same time. Yeah. And I I like too that like, you know, Michael B. Jordan's on board with Coogler in a supporting role. Like the movie's not about him. Um, the movie, no, no, it's, no. The movie's title is Black Panther. It is about Chadwick Boseman. Yes. And Chadwick Boseman is his own draw and will carry the movie. But it's also exciting to see all those flashes of all the faces that you know. To be like, yeah, sometimes big stars are not necessarily here for the supporting roles, for the smaller places. But everybody's like, no, I'm going to come to play in this world, regardless of to what degree I do so. Well, and, you know, in that respect, also Lupita. Exactly. Like, she's there. She's a flash in the pan in the trailer. But you're like, hey, here she is. Let's go. Let's play with all our friends. Angela Bassett. Right? <laughs> like, you know, we've these are marquee names. Oh, well, okay. If Like, <laughs> Sorry. I won't say marquee names. I really appreciate – no, no, no. Let's not cut that because I really appreciate that you walked yourself back on Angela Bassett. Well, I want to say that, like, marquee for one person may not be marquee to some, for somebody else, but right? certainly notable. Yeah. Like, we, you and I, are excited about Angela Bassett. Sure. Like, I am excited about Lupita. I mean, yeah, I'm going to rank Lupita somewhere above Angela Bassett, but for, yes. okay. Yes, but I mean, like, Angela Bassett is how Stella got her groove back. Welcome to the Angela Bassett hour. We'll be here all hour. <laughs> like, I am, I am here for, like, Angela Bassett being, like, Mother Black Panther. No, we know how you feel about Angela Bassett. <laughs> um, but I also want to, like, the point of, like, us listing all these names and these recognizable names is that this is a showcase of black talent. Um, this is, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to ever want to put words in their mouths, but the way I see this as an audience person is that this is a, an opportunity for them to be like, look at this acting community that hasn't gotten very many opportunities. And still, this is the quality that we're producing in this film. And also, like, this is also setting it up to win, right? Let's stack the deck. Yes. If you care nothing for any of these people and you are here for Angela Bassett, great. Come see the movie. If you've never heard of any of them, but you're here for Roxanne Gay's work, great. Come see the movie. If you only care because of Friday Night Lights, come see the movie. And to be clear, like while Roxanne Gay might not have an immediate um, connection to the film, 
she is part of the Wakanda universe. You know, she writes the comic, or she's written World of Wakanda. She's part of the family. I mean, the way that uh, all of these uh, comic book universe companies sort of have their banks of intellectual property and the number of people who are working on them, right? Like ta Coates also contributed to the Black Panther legend, uh, is fascinating and deep and probably a podcast or several on its own. Uh, but yeah, everybody gets a chance to sort of layer on this universe, which is amazing. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, to speak to our collective comic literacy or lack thereof, um, sure, like, you know, we are not going to be able to sit here and tell you that X scene from the movie is going to be from issue 64 of the whatever version of Black Panther. But we do understand it to a point where all of these versions and all of these stories have been written. And when they become cinematic uh, adaptations, the adaptations take from issue number 122 and also part of issue number 22. That I understand. I don't know I don't know exactly what they take, but that's how it works. No, and they talk back and forth between themselves, between the other films, between the like shows that nod to other characters, right? Like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and etc. Um it's a complicated world, but that's why this is so exciting. Like Wonder Woman before it, uh, in a totally different context, they are saying to people who know nothing, who are sitting here going, go back to J-Lo, they are saying to you, come on in, we got stuff for you too. And I actually buy it. Yeah, I, I buy it too. And I think that that's sort of where I, I do find it interesting how the comic world works because they can routinely sort of wipe away a version and then like recreate the character again with some essential qualities, but then be like, oh, I know that, like, he died, but he's not dead here. <laughs> We're just going to do it all over again. Do you know what I mean? Right, right, right. But that's the kind of thing that, like, like you know, when we talk about sort of comic book fanboys, and I include people of all genders in that sort of descriptor, uh, those are the people who get really uptight about that shit, right? Like, that's not canon. That's not really true. And it's that's what's so exciting about this stuff and about the sort of like, I know he's not really dead in this one or whatever. Is there like the feeling that we want to evoke in the people we want to come to this movie is more important than like didactic correctness for the sake of it. I am here for that. Are you here for Seth Rogen complaining about Sony's plans to release clean versions of certain movies. I mean, when you put it like that, like, so, okay, the, on its face, like, the argument is not that preposterous, right? They are going to release clean versions of movies, their term, not mine, uh, which is arguably bullshit because movies are made the way they're made on purpose to make a point, right? Uh, and he's like, this is disgusting. Short, short form, yes? Yes, he tweeted, holy shit, so <laughs> to the point, holy shit, please don't do this to our movies, thanks. So, yes, what he's saying is like, hey, uh, what you're trying to do is turn my movies, which are like full of things that aren't clean, into sanitized versions. Do we need to care about Seth Rogen? 
I mean, this is sort of what drives me a little bit nuts about it is like, obviously we all only care about things that are so self-interested, but like in the Venn diagram of things Seth Rogen speaks up about and Seth Rogen's career, like these overlap largely. If you cut down all of the unclean, again, their term, things out of Seth Rogen's movies, there's nothing left. So it's it just seems a bit rich to me. Like, it's like, would you be standing up this hard if it were somebody else's thing? Well, I, I, I see where you're going here with respect to Seth Rogen independently stand alone. But I also do see his point in that I'm not interested in a clean version of Pulp Fiction. And I don't think that Pulp Fiction is Pulp Fiction when it's cleaned up. Of course not, because again, it's not specific. That's right. And so my issue here, independent of Seth Rogen and what his interests and self-interests are with this issue, is that the, the Sony and the people who want to clean up these, these pictures and these projects, and this goes back to a phrase you use often, um, you can't be all things to all people. And to me, this is what an endeavor like this is trying to do. It's trying to make something specific and then almost taking away its backbone to try and make it all things to all people. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's utterly wrong and it's going to uh, bastardize bajillions of movies. No pun intended. Pun fully intended. But... Where even is the market for this? Do, it, do they specify who's asking for this? Well, and, and this is what it makes me crazy because um, according to uh, this Vanity Fair article that covered this story, it says um, plenty of third-party services like Clearplay and VidAngel have risen up Sorry, over the years. Sorry, go back. Clearplay and VidAngel? That's right. Go exactly. on have risen up over the years to edit and sell, quote, clean versions of popular films, though studios, as well as artists, haven't supported these unauthorized edits. VidAngel is currently in the midst of a lawsuit against Disney, Warner, uh, and 20th Century Fox over this very issue. This, like, I mean, this is really, to me, like, I'll get, say it again, fucked up crazy. Because if you're an artist and you put out your work one way, and... If there's no audience for it, so be it. But like, you know, for a company to come along and be like, we're going to like actually take someone's artistic work without authorization, we're going to do it anyway and clean it up as you, your question is for whom? Well, like whoever the people are who watch Clearplay and VidAngel. Yeah, but here's what's so interesting about that though. Say you are like, let's, uh, you know, while loosely maintaining a, uh, a shred of deniability. This seems like it's aiming at a particular cultural, dare I say, faith-based audience. Yes? I, that's my assumption as well. And yet, and, and, you know, and there's a reasonable assumption that some, some corners of said faith-based audience often have a lot of money. Yes? Correct. And yet, they could be making their own shiny, clean, inoffensive to anyone feature films about the love of one puppy and one chaste woman wearing turtlenecks. 
But they're not doing that. Instead, they're like, let's take the real movie starring the real stars. With the real language. Yes. And tidy them up because the audiences don't actually want the love of one puppy and one turtleneck. They don't want that. They want to see the jokes and the funny and the whatever and just cut out the word penis or… Uh, Cocksucker. Or cunt or whatever Yasik decides is bad enough to, to block <laughs> out, you know. Um, they want to see the real stars and or these video services are losing their audiences to places that play those movies. That's the more likely thing to me, right? Is that they're losing subscribers to… Netflix, probably. That HBO, has that back catalog. Hulu, whatever. Uh, and in order to lure them, they're like, no, no, we have the big celebrities too. Just just, just tidier. Just just cleaner. Just with, with, with no shots of boobies. That may be the case. Or it may be the case that like, if I'm just going to plant my feet in the ground, I'm just going to say, some things are not for you then. Yeah, absolutely. But my argument is like, you know how women's magazines are meant to create insecurity in women? Yeah. Right? Like the headlines are like, the what to do about your armpit fat? And you're like, Jesus, I didn't know I had armpit fat until now. Okay, what do I do? Right? Yeah. I feel like this is one of those things that is designed to create a problem that is not there. Uh, That, you know, there's, there's… these video services may be offering a lot of money to purchase these cleaned up versions, but I disagree that there's an audience for them or they wouldn't be going to the movies that they're going to. Does that make sense? They're creating a problem that is not there or a solution to a problem that's not there. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think we're both on board with this one. I fundamentally disagree with this effort. I do too. So, but let's just say… Yes. On the Seth Rogen side though. Okay. So, say we're in Hollywood. Say we're like very, very like whatever. We're on the mailing list of like the like, uh, I don't know, outspoken Twitter uh, club of A-listers in Hollywood, right? Like, do we kind of negotiate over this? Okay, guys, this is happening. Sony's doing like clean movies. Who's going to take this one? And like, say it's Seth Rogen and everybody's like, everything you make is called Sausage Party. Like, sit down, Rogen, maybe for this one. Like, do you think anybody's trying to vote him down? Well, let me just explore this because I I don't think I quite understand, um, like, to me, your shut up Seth Rogen. That's a bit strong. Like, Seth Rogen is a Canadian countryman. I am sure that he, like, quite quietly gives, you know much of his time and money to very, very worthy causes and all these things. I'm just saying it's a bit loaded in terms of protecting his own theoretical self-interest. Yes? Oh, for sure. Okay. But isn't that okay? It's fine. I'm just wondering what the reaction would have been to please don't do this if this had come from Julianne Moore. If Julianne Moore tweets, oh my God, please don't take the good parts out of our movies? Do more people listen or speak up? Because Julianne Moore's done some things in some movies, right? And she's still like a very respectable lady who people like and give Oscars to and things. So if Julianne Moore takes up this cause and she's the face of it, is there a different reaction than if it's Seth Rogen? That's my question. Um... Because what? Julianne Moore's career isn't typically associated with sausage parties? Not exclusively, right? Her right. whole MO. And again, Seth Rogen, love you, want to work with you, can't wait. But like if you are being 
uh, crude about your categorizations, right? Like Seth Rogen's stuff is… Dick jokes. Uh, silly. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it's jokes. Uh, regardless, right, at the best of times. A Julianne Moore who appreciates a sex scene or a toplessness or a, you know, drug use in film or whatever when necessary. Uh, Like, she's the epitome of tasteful nudity, right? Or, like, tasteful love scenes or whatever's required in that way. I'm just asking, does it become a different conversation if it's from somebody who's, I guess, more serious? I... Listen, if this was Adam Sandler… It's a f- interesting comparison. Then I would be like, fuck off Adam Sandler. Why? Um, Adam Sandler just went to Cannes and he may be the front runner to win Best uh, Actor I know. Oscar. So I get it. I think that though Adam Sandler's silly work is actually lazy. I don't think Seth Rogen's silly work, while silly is also lazy. No, I I agree with you. In fact, I think that breaking barriers is his point, right? But I'm just asking whether we don't see the forest for the trees from that person. Whereas, like, what if this is Emma Watson? Please don't censor our movies. She doesn't have a vested interest in the same way. Do people hear it in a different way? Yeah. I mean, of course, it would make a different impact if Emma Watson, who certainly has a different artistic reputation, for lack of a better word, than Seth Rogen, sure. And yet, um, the fact that Seth Rogen has a stake in this, I, I, I honestly don't mind that. Like, for him, if I'm arguing on his behalf, I'm like, there is tasteful, and there's a market for tasteful, but by that very argument, there should also be a market for what I do. And I am fighting for my place. And what you're trying to do here is sanitize and water down my lane. Ironically, I don't think that's true because he is going to, he's so outside. If you cut down Sausage Party to remove anything offensive, there's no movie, right? Sausage Party remains. It is the people in the middle whose movies get butchered but still can be passable without the nudity or without the whatever. Uh, that's where the the suffering is more, right? Like the the people whose the people whose tones or satires most often are so uh, out there or involve so much humor that like there would be nothing left of a slash and burn. Probably would never be sold to this sort of service in the first place. It's the like, oh, the movie's mostly fine, but there's this one scene uh, that are more likely to suffer in that way. So like, I think. Probably Seth Rogen movies have a, like, healthy uh, time on the black market uh, at, for vid angel, I understand, I expect. Like, is there vid devil and is it probably porn? <laughs> <laughs> so, the question, we're coming back to do we need to care about Seth Rogen? You obviously, no, not really. No, no, God. <laughs> like, Seth Rogen, like, look what's happening to me here. No, of course I care about Seth Rogen. I question whether I would care more about the issue delivered from someone in a turtleneck. Let us know if this issue would have been more of an impact to you had it been Julianne Moore or Emma Watson bringing it to your attention rather than Seth Rogen. Or 
Are you such a fan of Seth Rogen and the things that he does and the satire that is in his work? It's not just poop jokes, like he's always making a point that it makes it more interesting to you. In the meantime, I think we can all agree, let's keep the fucks in the fuck movies. Oh yeah, like absolutely. And some full frontal male nudity while we're at it. Great. On that note, thank you for joining us. Please email Elaine Louie and tell her your feelings on avocado toast and avocados on burgers. And a programming note, uh, we typically post this podcast on Mondays, but uh, for scheduling reasons, um, which I don't want to jinx right now until I get there, but because uh, there's some travel involved, we will not be able to record at our usual time next week, so the podcast will be posted uh, two days later on the Wednesday. Sorry for any interruption to your podcast schedule. Um, When I'm able to tell you where I'm going, I think you'll understand. I mean, I should just come with you and we should podcast on the road. Would you guys be in for like podcast travel episodes? You would, right? If the quality, sound quality was there, because that's my worry. That's Yasik's worry. No, even if we recorded it on our iPhones, you'd love it, right guys? Email Mm -hmm. Yasik, let him know. I don't know. But. I just want to go on my trip with you. <laughs> okay. Uh, check us out on Google Play and iTunes. Leave comments. Thank you for showing your work. Thank you for being passionate about work. And we will be back at work next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.